God's word says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we want to not just read about, but to know that fullness, the fullness of your glory in your church. So may we not just know with our heads, but with our hearts, help us to know of you. As we've seen these last few weeks, help us to know the riches of our inheritance, the hope of our calling, and the power we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Power. We want, we need, we crave, and we seemingly can't live without power. You may remember, just a couple years ago, 2020, the winter power outage crippled most of the state, and leaders declared, if not for immediate action, the whole power grid would have been shut down and seemingly for months. And while we often take electrical power for granted, we don't forget who has the remote control. We want the power, and we'll fight to get it. Not only do we want power, but we go crazy when we can't get it. Little kids blow up in rage when the Legos, the trains, or the blocks don't fit as they want. Grown men explode when their golf ball won't fly where they intended to hit it. Parents seethe when children won't behave. We want our words, our actions, our lives to have power. And we know that some people want it so badly they will do anything to get it or keep it. Some allegations were made recently that a few decades ago, a man currently running for U.S. Senate wrote a check so that his girlfriend could have an abortion. Some have said the report is true, others have said it's not. Either way, one pro-life TV and radio host said, how many times have I said four very important words? Winning is a virtue. She continued, I don't care. I don't know if he did it or not. I don't even care. I don't care if he paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. Now we could dive into all the reasons why she thinks that doesn't disagree with her pro-life convictions, but my main point is to show the craving we have for power. I want control of the Senate. And again, my point's not to attack that idea, that person per se, but just to show how much we all want the power. And we think if we have the power, we can cause good and right. The amazing, almost shocking truth is that God wants us to have power. And Paul is praying right here in these verses that we're looking at that the Ephesians and we would know the power of God that we can have in Christ. 
To recap, Paul began this letter with sweeping praise to God for all the blessings that God has given us in Christ. Based on that, Paul turned to give thanks to God for the Ephesians and how he's worked in their lives, love and faith. And now in this prayer, he's been praying that God would open their hearts so they might know the riches of their inheritance in the saints, the hope of their calling, and now third today, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. This morning, we'll see in the first two verses the evidence of Jesus' power. Now, this section is going to be much longer, so if you're thinking, we're not done with the first section yet, come on, Pastor, we got Luby's waiting for us. Actually, it shut down. Some other place waiting for us. Well, the last two sections will be a little shorter. Then we'll look at the scope of Jesus' power, verses 21 through 23, and then knowing Jesus' power. First, the evidence of Jesus' power. Paul gives the third thing he wants the Ephesians to know, and that's verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You know, Paul is gushing with language to try and capture the power of God. It's exceedingly magnificent. It surpasses all in its greatness. As Paul will explain, this is a power that is not rivaled by anyone. This last year, the world has stood amazed at how the small and seemingly weak Ukrainian military has withstood the Russians. It appeared to be a match of a former superpower against almost no power. And yet that comparison doesn't even come close to God's power versus everyone and everything else. If we were to make a human comparison, it would be like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime versus a dead person. There is no comparison. God's power stands alone, unique, and completely above and beyond anyone and anything. And the amazing thing is Paul doesn't want us to just know God's power, but he wants his power to be known toward us who believe. We receive that power. God's not a power hoarder. He's a power sharer. And God delights to share that power with those who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we should realize and know the power that God gives us in the gospel. As Christians, we should never feel impotent. Now, we do at times, and that's why we and the psalmist cry out and we lament, because sometimes we seem powerless. We seem like everything's going the wrong way in the world. And yet, why do we cry to God? Because we know He has the power to change it. Paul then expands upon this power. All of the rest of verses 19 through 23 are an expansion of this power. And that's interesting because the first two things Paul wanted us to know, the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, he just stated them. He didn't expand. Now, he could have. We spent some time expanding upon them. But here, when he gets to the power, he gives this lengthy discussion of it. I think it's because the theme of power was a major issue in Ephesians. So important that in regards at least to the words that are used, Ephesians uses words for power more than any other New Testament letter. And let's see why. Let's turn to Acts 19, where we will read about some events that occurred in Ephesus. So Acts 19, we're going to read verses 11 through 16, and then later some of the other verses. So Acts 19, 
beginning in verse 11. This is Paul when he's in Ephesus, and it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So here, Paul has been doing these miraculous things through the name of Jesus. And thus, Paul is able to talk to them about power, knowing they recognize this. So even his handkerchiefs brought healing and cast out demons. Now let me do a quick side note, a small rabbit trail. Rabbit trail. Does God still heal people today? Yes. Many of us could probably share stories of praying for our, someone who has something that seems untreatable or very bad, and we pray, and the next time they go to the doctor, the doctor says, well, I can't really explain this, but it's no longer there. And we have seen God work like that. Now, if the question is, does God still heal like he did through Jesus and the apostles? I would say no. Jesus or his apostles spoke, touched, or in this case, had something that touched them bring instantaneous, clear, and total restoration. Now, there are people who claim today, I have that healing power, but often the things they point to are vague, they are not instantaneous, and they are not total. Now, why would God have allowed that? Well, because Hebrews 2.4 talks about these signs and wonders that authenticated Jesus and his apostles. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that the signs and wonders are the signs that he was an apostle. Thus, while God is still actively working, God still brings miracles today, I don't believe specific Christians have the gift of healing the way the apostles had. That was a unique gift so that the ministry and message of the apostles could be made known. Back to the main point, though. After some men were told seven sons of a man named Siva, when they saw what Paul was doing, they tried to mimic it using the name of Jesus. However, the demon overcame them. They were then so terrified were so controlled that all seven of them ran out of their house naked. Look down at verse 17 and what it then says. And this became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Thus, these people who are receiving this letter in Ephesus, they're not wondering, what is Paul talking about when he's talking about power name over any other names. They would remember these things that they had seen with their own eyes. They would remember, wow, those seven men were running around naked in the streets. What in the world? And they would know of this power. 
Not only that, look down at verses 18 and 19 of Acts 19. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So here we see people publicly confessing their sins. People like to keep their skeletons in the closet. They don't like to bring them out. We're ashamed of them. But something has powerfully overcome these people that they're willing to confess their deeds done in secret. Not only that, these people even told that they had practiced magic. They had tried to have power, but they turned from that power to the power of God. And thus they burned their magic books. How much? Worth 50,000 pieces of silver. It takes something powerful for us to be willing to throw away or burn that much value. Thus the section wraps up. Look at Acts 19.20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Or we might say with power. Thus as we return back to Ephesians chapter 1. We recognize that these Ephesians know what Paul is talking about. When he's talking about power. Power over demons. Power that people had tried to get through magic. But realized they could only achieve in Jesus name. Power to confess sins, power to turn down money. And the power they have, Paul tells us, is according to the working of His, that's God's the Father's, great power and might. The source of the power is clear. God. And we want to know the source of our power too. And we want evidence that it will work. You know, we, as a society, are wrestling with what's the best source of our electrical power? Should we get it from coal? or solar, or nuclear, or hydro, or wind, or gas. And the question that people ask is, well, what's the evidence that these forms of power will be able to deliver what these forms of power have? Can a diesel-powered truck haul more or less than a battery-powered truck? These are questions people are asking. We want to know, is there evidence that this has power? Well, Paul leaves no doubt about the evidence of God's power. For it was by this power that he raised Jesus from the dead, he tells us in verse 20. Now, Paul could have mentioned anything to describe God's power. For example, he could have brought up the fact that God spoke a universe into existence. Nothing was there. He spoke, and it's all there. That's power. And yet he chose the resurrection for through the resurrection, Jesus conquered death. He defeated sin. And he became the first fruits of a perfect eternity for those who trust him. Now, there can be no greater power than a power that can overcome death. John Stott writes, The two powers which we cannot control, but which hold us in bondage, are death and evil. We are mortal. We cannot avoid death. We are fallen. We cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both and can therefore rescue us from both. And not only has Jesus been raised from the dead though, but God also, God the Father, seated him in the heavenlies. 
You know, here and later in verse 22, Paul's alluding to Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, that passage, Psalm 110.1, is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it shows the power, the reign, and the plan of Jesus. It shows his power, for he is in the supreme position, the right hand of God. And Paul adds here, in the heavenlies. You know, where are the movers and shakers in this world? Where are the power brokers? Well, they're not on Capitol Hill in D.C. They're not at the United Nations in New York. They are not in Beijing, Moscow, or London. There is only one ultimate power broker, Jesus. And he is in the supreme position of power, the right hand of God the Father in the heavenlies. This shows not only his power, but also his reign. For he is King of kings and Lord of lords who has set down. Now, many of us have desk jobs, so sitting down does not mean what it would have been meant to many of these agricultural workers. Many people who were day laborers, when they sat down, their job was finished. They're done. I can sit. Jesus said, it is finished. And his task is done. His reign is complete. And yet, though it is complete, thirdly, this shows his plan, because while he's finished his work, he currently allows enemies. Notice, it says, he will sit until all his enemies are his footstool, meaning until there's more yet to happen. Jesus has already purchased the victory, but he patiently waits before completely securing it. Why? Why didn't he, when he rose again from the dead, go ahead and just, it's over. Because he's patiently calling people back to himself. He's wanting to give them a time and a chance to, repeat, to repent. And when we talk about God's power, often people bring up the term omnipotence. Omni, the Latin word for all, and potence, the word for power. Like, ooh, that's potent, or oh, that is impotent. These words together mean all power. Omnipotence means all power. And we must carefully explain what that does and doesn't mean. Wayne Grudem helps explain it by writing, God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. And Grudem defines it that way, not because of philosophical speculation, but rather because of God's revelation and declaration of himself. Like Jeremiah 32, 17. O Lord God, it is you who made the heaven and the earth by your great power and your outstretched harm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jesus said in Matthew 19:26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can do, as we'll see later in Ephesians 3:20, more than we can ask or think. This John the Baptist says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now there has often been a misunderstanding of God's omnipotence though because people abstract it from God's character. And that's why Grudem purposely added to his definition, God is able to do all his holy will. To say that God has all power, that he's omnipotent, is not to say 
that God can do anything that our mind can conceive. Thus, it's nonsense to ask a question like, well, if God is omnipotent, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Uh-huh. Well, that's nonsense. Besides God's holy will that will never want to do that, it's a logical fallacy. A rock is a finite material object. For an infinite power to be unable to lift it, the rock must be infinitely large. But then you have ceased having a rock. Thus, affirming God's omnipotence doesn't mean you have to feel foolish when someone scoffingly asks you, well, can God make a square circle? Can God make a headless, two-headed monster? That's not what the Bible or we mean when we use the term omnipotence. God even clearly reveals that there are things He can't do. Hebrews 6.18 It is impossible for God to lie. 2 Timothy 2.13 God remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. James 1.13 Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted for God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. In other words, we can fully affirm God's omnipotence while also saying there are things God can't do because they are against His holy will. God will never want to lie. He'll never cease to exist. And He'll never desire evil. You know, when we seek to know God, we can't take one attribute and just run with it as far as our minds think it could go. We have to understand God's character with everything else about His being and His perfect unity. So Paul expands to show the scope of Jesus' power next. And we're going to see it's overall both in regards to time, location, or entity. So the second point, the scope of Jesus' power in verses 21 through 23. He begins in verse 21 by saying, Jesus' seat of power is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. There's no entity that can come in and overrule him. He's not concerned that he might make an edict and it might then get blocked in the courts. He's not battling other legislation and working through the court of appeals and hoping that he might get a hearing at the Supreme Court. He doesn't merely rule a region, a territory, or a place. Jesus is the ruler and judge over every judge, entity, place, and power. His edicts and rules are final. Not only that, but the name of Jesus has more power than any other name. Now, it is very important to realize that under the sun, God allows people and names to have power. When God worked the miracles through Moses in Egypt, for several of the miracles, the Egyptian magicians were able to perform the same miracles by the names of their gods. There are names in this world besides the name of Jesus that have power. Yet, the Egyptian magicians and gods were limited, for their power went as far as God's leash allowed them. Thus, Exodus 14.31 says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And even earlier, Acts 19, we saw in Ephesus the difference between the names of other gods and the name of Jesus. You know, they saw the name of Jesus, what it did through 
Paul. But when they saw the sons of Sceva try to manipulate the name of Jesus, they saw how they were overcome by the demon. And on top of all this, the power and reign of Jesus will never come to an end. For it is not only in this age, but also the one to come. If you follow world news, you'll know that this last week, Liz Truss resigned as prime minister in the UK after only 44 days in office. Surely, 45 days before that, some people were joyful, thinking this is going to last for years. Probably some were fearful, thinking, I can't believe she's going to be in control. Yet, she couldn't keep her power for two months. She couldn't keep it for a month and a half. Hitler promised a thousand-year reign and couldn't make it two decades. And we could list every single ruler. For every single one of them will die, be assassinated, resign, or be removed from office by term limits or a coup. In other words, their term of power is limited. It's finite. Jesus is infinite. He will reign eternally, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And nothing and no one will challenge his authority or power. If Paul's statements hadn't been clear so far, or clear enough, he then elaborates in verse 22 that God put all things under his feet. This again alludes back to Psalm 110. It also alludes to Psalm 8, which refers to the amazing truth that as the psalmist looks to the heavens, he is amazed that God would be concerned for him. And he says, You've given us humans dominion over the work of your hands and put all things under man's feet. And yet our dominion that God has given us, that Genesis 1 talks about, is incomplete. Because we, dust, will return to dust. We have not only sought to take dominion over the earth, as we should, but it ultimately takes dominion over us. And we return to it. Yet Jesus came. He conquered death. So that rather being turned to dust, he has dominion over the earth. He lives forever in his resurrected body. Well, Paul adds item after item in the scope of Jesus' power. And he concludes by declaring him to be head over the church. Now, the church is not just any entity, though. He expands in verse 23 that it is his body. And Paul will use that image in 1 Corinthians 12 and expand on it greatly. But here... He just mentions it to show the scope of Jesus' power. He has a fascinating statement, though, and that is that the church has the fullness of Jesus. Now think about when the Bible has talked about the fullness of God being somewhere. You may think of Exodus 40, 34-35. And if you did, I'll read it for you, because it's right here. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You know, God so filled the movable tent, the tabernacle, with his presence that even Moses, the one who was said could talk face to face with God, was not able to enter. Now you may not have thought of that. You might have thought of 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. Let's consider that one. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is the dedication of the temple. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled 
the house of the Lord. Just like the tabernacle, God's glory filled the temple so much that even the people who were to minister for God couldn't stay there. Well, Paul takes this idea of filling to describe Jesus and his relationship to the church. God chose that his glory be specifically make, made known in Jesus, and Jesus chose to allow the fullness of his glory to be in the church. Now you might look around. You can go ahead and look around. And you might think, there's not much glory in this room. This doesn't seem like anything glorious. But from God's perspective, His church is a glorious body. He has chosen in a unique way, more than an individual Christian, to end the gathering of the saints, to allow the fullness of His glory to dwell. And so since Jesus is the head of the church, that means that every church is His church. I don't know if you ever talked this way, but let me encourage you not to. This is not Pastor Jeremy's church. This is not Keith's church. This is Christ's church. And while we've been made stewards, so yes, there is a sense where you can say, well, yes, I'm the pastor there, I'm a member there, so that is my church. We are not owners, we're stewards. And so what are we going to do here? What the head of the church tells us to do. Now, we have freedom in that. We didn't get a divine mandate this week of the five songs we were going to sing. We're given freedom, but we were going to sing songs because we're told to worship God with song. We didn't, God didn't send me a direct message. I don't get DM'd by God that you should preach from Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. But I wasn't going to do art and dance up here because God said to preach the word. So it's his church, so we run it his way. So here in these verses, Paul is wanting us to know the power of God. And I want to end by looking at three ways, if we come to know the power of God, three ways that that has worked out in the lives of believers and even in Jesus to lead them to holiness. So knowing Jesus' power. First, if we know the power of God, then we will have a deep humility, deep humility. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 is written right before Israel entered the land and it warns, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Every good thing in our life is from above, coming from the Father of lights. This gets played out in the opposite way in pride in King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The mightiest ruler of, his, of that time. One day in Daniel chapter 4 we read he went out on the, on the top of his throne, of his palace. And as he looked out he said this. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He was doing the exact opposite of Deuteronomy 8. He was saying, I built this. I have the power. I did it. And then God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And soon after that, Nebuchadnezzar then said, Now I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. For His works are right and His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able 
to humble. And even here in Ephesians 1.18, we're reminded that any power we have is given to those who believe. It's a gift. Any power we might have only comes to us from God. So that's why Paul describes us as jars of clay. That's not a very, like, hey, y'all are wonderful type of description. That's like a, you're an everyday use type of thing. You get broken, chipped, destroyed. You don't have power in yourself. You're an everyday house object. But why? That the surpassing power might be shown to belong to God and not to us. You know, we need God's power to do anything. And unlike the message preached by our culture, the more we turn in and trust ourselves, the weaker we become. It's the exact opposite. When we recognize our weakness, when we humbly say, I can't do it, that's when we have power. As God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Thus the true spiritual life is often seemingly upside down. Death leads to resurrected life. Suffering leads to glory. Power comes through humbly confessing our weakness. Well, second, if we know the power of Jesus, then we will eagerly serve others. You probably remember the story. Jesus is walking with his disciples and two brothers, James and John, come up and say, Lord, will you grant us our request? Will you allow us to sit on your right and your left? Now, what are they asking for? They're asking for the seats of power. They want the positions of power. And yet Jesus says to them, Mark 10, 42-45, He called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus used his power to serve. Whereas often when we get power, we use it to serve ourselves. As Lord Acton famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We get power and we, how can I serve myself? God who has all power said, how can I serve others and if we truly know jesus power the way he uses power we will want to serve third if we know the power of jesus then we don't need to fear when called to compromise our values we can face the authorities of this world with confidence though not cockiness when jesus was on trial before pilate pilate was attacking him say will you not answer me And Jesus replied, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And that's true today. People could tell us, Don't you know I'm in charge? And we can say, You would have no authority if God had not given it to you. This is powerfully displayed in Daniel 3. This is before Nebuchadnezzar's 
pride, but, well, he was still prideful, but before that scene of pride, he orders that everyone in the land shall bow down and worship when they play instruments. But three Jewish young men refuse to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them before and says, I'm going to play these instruments and you all bow. And they say, we will refuse. And he then threatens them by death, by burning. They calmly reply, though, in verses 16 through 18, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if God chooses not to save us, they're saying, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, this sent Nebuchadnezzar berserk. He would not stand to anyone challenging his authority. So he said, make the fire seven times hotter. And even the guards who took the young men up burned to death because it was so hot. Yet though they threw them in, Daniel 3.27 recounts, the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Their heads, the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. And we are often called, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, to compromise our values. That crude and inappropriate joke gets told, and while they all laugh, they look to see to you and see, are they going to laugh along with us? Someone declares that any loving person would be fine with this, and then they look to you, are you fine with this? The group declares, hey, we're going to go do this, and you know what's wrong, and they say, are you coming along? They're just assuming, hey, we're all going to go do this, what's the big deal? And we can fear, well, they're going to mock us. They're going to ostracize us. Yet if we know the power of God, then we can live fearlessly in the face of challenges. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And we must remember that God does not only want us to know, Paul does not only want us to know God's power, but also the hope of our calling and the riches of our inheritance. In other words, God doesn't want us to just know He controls everything. He also cares for us. He has an inheritance for us. He also has hope for us. This is power is not just brute might. This is power that is exercised through the cross, the ascension, and the resurrection. Thus, may we pray, like Paul, that we might know Christ in the power of His resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Let's pray. Lord, may that truly be our prayer, to know your power, so that we might be the things that you call us to be, to be humble, to be servants, to be fearless. Lord, all of those are completely unnatural to us. We want to be able to boast. We want to be served. We want to compromise so people will like us. So Lord, we need to know, not just with our heads, but down to our hearts, the power you've given us in Christ. Would you help us to know that? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.